You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. Welcome to another episode of Semper Reform on the Radio. Uh, my name is Tim Shaughnessy, and I'm here with Owen Pond and Carlos Montijo, who are also co-hosts of uh, our podcast. We are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. There's a couple of other podcasts out there to check out. Uh, Conversations from the Porch, they'll teach you about New Covenant Theology, and Ladies Love Theology. They, uh, I think they've got a couple of episodes out, so go ahead and check them out. And, uh, and then there's us, and then there's the original Bible-thumping wingnut guys, Tim and Len. And uh, there's, also, there, there's a lot going on with the network. Uh, I think they're, they just named a segment that they do with uh, Matt Slick called Slick Answers. That was, uh, the name was coined by Christopher Fales, so good job there. But, uh, all right, so today we are, as I said before, we are moving on from NCT. Everybody breathe a sigh of relief. We got through it. Um, And today we are uh, here with a good, good, good friend, uh, Tim Kaufman. So uh, what we're going to do today is is we're going to do another segment on Tim Keller with Tim Kaufman, and then you have me, Tim Shaughnessy, and uh, not to be confused with Tim Hurd. So... Again, there's way too many Tims out there, but we're going to do an episode today on Tim Keller. And what we're so here's my thought behind this. I think that the work on Tim Keller is out there. Uh, we we've uh, given resources to go check out. Uh, there's a there's an excellent uh, audio a lecture that we put up. It's also up on the Trinity Foundation by Tim Kaufman on Tim Keller, and uh, and some other people as well. Uh, Kaufman has written articles on Tim Keller. I've written an article on Tim Keller. You can check out my article on the Bible Thumping Wingnut blog post. So the work, I think, is out there. And today, what we're going to do is, I I think that this is very important. What we're going to do is we're going to address our critics. And uh, and it's actually pretty interesting because when when I put up my article on the Bible Thumping Wingnut blog post, 
I really anticipated that I was going to get hit with a, a lot of these criticisms. And to my surprise, uh, Lynn uh, gave me a shout out and uh, Lynn gave us a shout out, uh, Semper Reformanda Radio, for the podcast that we did. Uh, I think he said that we nailed it. So kudos to, to you, Brother Kaufman. And uh, Brother Kaufman, uh, we're, we're going to refer to Brother Kaufman as Timothy, and then I'll be Tim in this episode. So, um, but l let me uh, let me just before we get get into our criticisms, our criticisms of us, let me uh, give the guys an opportunity to say hello, say what's up. Uh, is there anything you guys uh, want to say before we get started? No, I'm just really looking forward to it after the first part of the discussion. And I know I have a lot of questions, uh, just personally, that I think uh, to answer. And then also, there's you know pretty common objections to our argumentation. So I really look forward to hearing the answers to that from uh, from people who have spent a long time thinking about it. Because frankly, it's it's all new to me. Now I want to say thanks for having me back. Uh, I know that we originally planned on just having one uh, podcast on the issue of Keller, but uh, there's so much to discuss and so much for people to know about. I appreciate you having me back. Yeah, we're very grateful to have Brother Kaufman with us again. And I was also going to mention that I have been, I've actually been working on an article on Keller uh, with a lot of help from uh, both Tim's, the Brother Tim Shaughnessy and Brother Kaufman, uh, for like, it's been years now. And it, it's long overdue. So um, hopefully I will. I do plan to get it out there before the end of the year um, to kind of keep continue to develop what we've been exposing and talking about with regards to Tim Keller. Yeah, Carlos is actually writing a book. <laughs> it's like, how, how many pages are you at right now? Like 20 or 30? No, I think it's probably closer to 40 and over like over 100 footnotes. So it's 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 a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty comprehensive and uh, yeah so I think the reason that uh, this episode is going to be important is because whenever we criticize uh, Tim Keller or Tim Keller's views or what he says or what you know uh, what he writes in his books uh, I think Owen uh, hit the nail on the head uh, the objections are that, that we receive are pretty uh, common uh, and we hear the same ones all the time but before we get into that I, I almost forgot Last time on our episode, we ended with Owen asking a question about the uh, Christ-centered hermeneutic, and um, we we thought that the question might not have been answered uh, as directly, but the, the what uh, Kaufman said was was outstanding. But we just want to bring some clarity to that question. So, uh, Owen, what was what what exactly was your question last time? So a big part of the critique in last episode uh, against Tim Keller is his his overemphasis on a Christocentric hermeneutic, uh, not one that that properly sees Christ in the Old Testament, but one that attempts to force that into every passage of every text. And so, one example that's very common, for example, uh, when for example when I first came to a Christocentric hermeneutic, of course. David and Goliath is the the story that everyone goes to because it's such an easy story to tell. You know, you're David, Goliath is a problem, you get your five stones and you name these stones. And it's the way to look at this um, allegorically. And, and that's very that was very common for many of us 
growing up. And then when we come to the Reformed world, we hear, no, no, actually David is Christ and Goliath is the devil. And, and that's, in fact, I think pretty much anyone who's spent any amount of time in the Reformed world will have at least seen one short little five-minute video on that. And when um, Brother Kaufman spoke about it, he spoke about the fact that actually um, there's a there's a much more on-the-face way to read this where, you know, Israel is faithless. They don't believe that God can deliver them, just like they didn't believe that God could deliver them uh, when they sent the spies into Canaan. And David does believe that. And in fact, this is a story about God's faithfulness. Um, and, you know, Brother Timothy, you can correct me if I'm mischaracterizing that. But my question would be then, given that there's that primary interpretation, wrong then to see uh, David as a type of Christ. Is that is that wrong in that particular story? I know a lot of our listeners would be interested in hearing your take on that. So, so the, to get to the, uh, I just want to revisit briefly, and I appreciate the question. Is the question is, is it wrong to see David as a type of Christ in that story? Well. The, listen, there are some similarities. There's no doubt about it. David goes in as a representative for the people of God. There's no doubt. In fact, those were the terms of the engagement. Instead of two armies going at it, we're just going to send in one representative and send in, you know, our side, the good people, a good side sends in uh, one representative, the bad guy sends in his representative, they do battle. You know, to the degree that, you know, we, we would advance the cause of substitutionary atonement as Jesus goes in our place. You know, I look at that and I say, you know, that's very interesting. It's a very unique, it's, it's a unique uh, situation that relates directly to Christ going to the cross in our place. And I have absolutely no problem looking at that and saying, well, here's some facts about the, the battle that took place and why it was reduced to just two representatives. Uh, and so I don't have a problem with that. And I think that, of course, there are a lot of texts of Scripture that refer explicitly to David, and then the apostles in their record of the gospel account relate those to Jesus. And, you know, in, in John 19, 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Well, that's a reference to Psalm 143, 6, that David wrote about himself. And... Again, uh, by, in uh, Acts 4.25, uh, it says, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? It's referencing Psalm 2, verse 1, which is a psalm about David, and it says, I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. These are verses about David, and we're asked by the apostles, we're told by the apostles, that the Spirit explicitly you know, has a meaning in that that's about Christ, and, and by explicit, I mean we've been explicitly told by the apostles. Um, in Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5, we have references to Psalms 2.7, which says, I will declare the decree uh, the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. That's David you know, writing about himself, and the apostles teach us to understand that this is fulfilled in Christ. And in fact, that's what you know, the, the Lord says to, to, to Jesus, Thou art my son. And um, in Acts 2.27, uh, where it says, uh, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And that's clearly a reference to Psalm 16.10. And So there, there are times in the scripture where the apostles explicitly tell us, you know, I know that this original verse was about David, 
but it was a prophecy by the Spirit that would be applied to Christ, and the apostles had that knowledge from the Spirit, by the Spirit, to say there's this Old Testament passage that is about David initially, but, but prophetically it's about Jesus, and, and we have to be told those kinds of things. But I, I don't know, and, and I can be corrected on this, I don't know where in, in the New Testament it says explicitly that that David and Goliath battle is specifically a prophecy of Christ and imputed righteousness and justification by faith alone. And that was how Keller wanted to apply it. In fact, he so wanted to apply it as justification by faith alone that he, he actually tells us that we're wrong to look at this as that, you know what? You actually can go in in the strength God has given you to defeat a giant because God is on your side. And, and that's actually what the text says. And that's actually, and, and uh, Keller says that we're self-righteous <laughs> if we say it that way. And the reason he concludes that we're self-righteous is because it's obviously supposed to be a passage about justification by faith alone. And if you say David went in with even one ounce of his own strength, then there must be something wrong because there's the self-justification. And, and, and that's where I think that the, the, the statement in the uh, audio series from Keller that I found so disturbing was that unless you're expounding every text is about Jesus, you're changing the meaning of the Bible for the people. And yet what I find, if every single text is about Jesus, then you really are changing the text. And, and one example I gave, and I just want to wrap up on this in particular, just to show the absurdity of the approach. This is Augustine in his exposition of Psalm 34, verse 1. And for his inspiration on that psalm, he refers to 1 Samuel 21, 13, which is a, the, the place where David is feigning madness and he scratches on the door of the king and the version that Augusta was using has him drumming on the door of the king. And, and so this is, this is uh, David going before Abimelech and he's scratching or drumming on the door. And, and, uh, and Augustine uh, sorry, says, um, because a drum is made with skin extended over wood and David drummed on the door, that signifies Christ crucified. And, and then, then the drumming on the door is not a reference to the door in the cities, but the door to our hearts, uh, which were closed against Christ. And, and, and by the drum of his cross, Jesus opened up the hearts of mortal men. And, and I look at that and I say, you know, I'm pretty sure that verse is about David drumming on the door. Because <laughs> that's what it says. I'm not compelled, and the apostles have not informed us uh, uh, to, the, to the contrary. I'm, I'm just not compelled to believe that that verse is about Jesus. It sure looks like it's about David. Now, do, do the apostles tell us that there are some verses about David that are prophetically about Jesus? They absolutely do. And there are aspects of what David did in that battle that have to do with substitution. That's a pretty big deal. And, and I'm not against bringing that out of the text. But what I am concerned about, and this is what uh, Calvin was so concerned about, is he said... Uh, he said that it was foolishness to, and we do violence to the text if we act as if it's our purpose, sophistically, to apply to, to apply to Christ those things that do not directly refer to him. That's Calvin's Commentaries, Volume 10. But, so, you know what, to answer your question, I hope that this is sufficiently uh, clear that 
I think there are a lot of great stories in the Old Testament, and there's nothing wrong with weaving Christ's ministry into the stories. But to simply state that every single text is about Jesus is really a rejection of the fact that God is sometimes revealing stuff to us that has nothing to do with Jesus. It actually has to do with other people. And it's important for us to not approach the text presuming to already know what it means. And I just wanted to ask, we may have gotten, gotten this out. You are Reformed, is that correct? Yes. Uh, you're a Presbyterian. Yes, sir. And you have not been excommunicated for denying uh, this hermeneutic. No, no, I have not yet been excommunicated for denying the hermeneutic. Right, right. By hold, for holding to Calvin's hermeneutic. Yeah, well, that, that's right. So, so you understand my point, I hope, is that, you know, yeah, I, I, I did write an article about this. I wrote of my concern about it. It's, uh, it's called The Primacy of Narrative and, and Keller's Exegetical Method. That where he simply determines that the whole, every single thing in the Bible is about Jesus, and therefore I'm going to preach Jesus from every text. But the fruit of that is he gets to the last two chapters of Esther and says, that's not consistent with the narrative of Scripture, so I'm leaving it out. And, and why does Keller leave that out? It's because of the hermeneutic that demands that every verse of Scripture is about Christ. You come to a story in Esther that doesn't seem to fit that narrative, and suddenly when you're opening up the Word of God to people, you close it when you get to those chapters. Now that is a, that, that is a not only is it a sad commentary on on the hermeneutic, but it's 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 just destructive to the people of God who are to be sanctified by the preaching of the Word. And and in fact, in the audio series on preaching Christ from every text, some of his class, some of the students in his class said that, aren't by by using this method, aren't we withholding God's Word from His people? And I thought it was a very appropriate question. Well, let me let me follow up with another question. Uh, I'm glad you haven't been excommunicated, <laughs> but um. Have you have you received criticisms from uh, you know Presbyterians? And what's what's really interesting is that Keller is is I mean he he's not just known by Presbyterians. I think he's he's known by most. He's he's a household name. Um, and and I've even met some people who were you know oh he's Presbyterian. They didn't know that he was Presbyterian. But have you received criticisms for? Uh, have you been criticized for uh, calling him out for these things? I have been on occasion. I, I, I wouldn't say that I've been uh, inundated with criticisms. I think the people say, well, Tim, Timothy Kaufman has a, a unique and interesting perspective on an otherwise extremely popular preacher. But I was at one time advised by someone that it's just not wise to uh, criticize someone who is so well and broadly received within the PCA. And, uh, and I've gotten that for criticizing other people who are <laughs> prominent to the PCA as well. And, I, I, and that's, that's one of the concerns that I have and why I'm very interested in the ministry you have uh, as a, as a Bible-thumping wingnut, that we actually need to bring this out and say, is it, it's not, the question we ask when we hear a message is not, um, is it something that compromises the esteem in which um, a larger-than-life personality is held by the broader church. That's not the question we ask when we hear something preached. The question we ask is, is it consistent with the scriptures? And, and so I say, okay, here's what Keller said, and here's what the scriptures say, and I disagree with him. And the answer I got was, you really shouldn't be going up against Keller. <laughs> like, what does it matter? 
what his name is or who he is or how prominently, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what, what throne he occupies within the PCA. The fact is, is what he's saying true? Right. <laughs> and sometimes what he's ironically, saying is false. Yeah. yeah, ironically, that that's probably what they would have told David. And that's what they did tell David when he went up against Goliath. Uh, but he told he told them, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And so in some ways, uh, it's very ironic and fitting how Keller in many ways have, has defied the God of Scripture by undermining the Scripture so much and so uh, persistently with his very imbalanced hermeneutic. And I did want to ask this, though. Um, I think... And I'm, I think everybody would agree to this, but I'm not sure. So I want to throw this out there. Would you all agree that while not every single verse in the Bible is explicitly or directly about Christ, it, if it's not directly about Christ, then, then it's indirectly about him, or you can make the case that it obviously points to him in some indirect fashion? You know, if, if you know, Jesus is the Lord of all history, and he's the Lord of prophecy, and he's the Lord of Scripture, there, there's no doubt that Jesus is who we preach. And it's okay, of course, to weave Christ into a sermon. It's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Of course, I'm not criticizing that. The, uh, you know, I, I would say uh, the, uh, the prominent, let's just look at, uh, let's just think about Daniel chapter 8. The prominent horn between the eyes of the he-goat is the first king of the Greeks. And I'm pretty sure that's a reference to Alexander the Great. It's not, that is not a text of scripture that is about Jesus. I think we'd, perhaps we'd all agree. I know that it's a matter of eschatology, but I think it's very broadly received that that first king of the Greeks in Daniel chapter 8 is, uh, is a reference to Alexander the Great. Um, in, in the story, because we're looking at, at a series of kingdoms, uh, that are pagan kingdoms, and that the kingdoms of the world tend to reject the Lord of history. We could say, you know, here's uh, Alexander the Great, but he's not so great that he uh, lives longer than Christ, is more powerful than Christ. In fact, uh, even as great as Alexander was, he still went the way he was destined to go, and the one who destined him to go there was Christ himself. And we have to remember that Jesus Christ is the Lord sovereign of all history. You know, that's a, that's a fair, that's a reasonable thing to say. And I think that you could preach that. You get up in the pulpit and say, this is about Alexander the Great. Never forget, as great as Alexander was, he was only great because God allowed him to be. And he ended no not a day sooner or a day later than the Lord ordained because the Lord is sovereign, Lord of history. But the horn on the goat is still Alexander the Great. <laughs> it's not about Jesus. It's There's a way to be clear exactly. about this without just completely changing the meaning of every single verse of Scripture. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, exactly. I agree as well. Uh, so, Brother Kaufman, uh, you said something that uh, I kind of want to pick up on, and I think it's a good segue into uh, addressing our, our criticisms. Uh, you were saying that um, somebody had, you know, criticized you for, you know, taking uh, taking up a position against Tim Keller. And I kind of want to uh, talk about that because I had a similar experience where I criticized something in one of Wayne Grudem's books. Uh, well, actually, a systematic theology book. And uh, the what I was told was, you know, well, that's Wayne Grudem that you're talking about there, kid. You know, and, and it's like, okay, well, 
he is fallible, right? He can make a, a mistake. And uh, so our experience with this, and, and so this is the first uh, objection that, uh, that I want to tackle. Our, uh, our, our experience with this, with this was uh, Carlos and I were at a church where uh, Tim Keller was being promoted heavily. Uh, he was uh, a lot of people's favorite guy to go to. Uh, and when, when we went to the pastor uh, the first time to say, hey, you know, I, we've got some issues with Tim Keller. The very first thing that the pastor did was he, he basically gave me Tim Keller's resume. He said, you know, well, Tim Keller's a pastor in the PCA. He's in good standing. He's been preaching for over 20 years. He's, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he started the Gospel Coalition, uh, or he, he's the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. Um, and so th they cite his credentials, all the good things that he, the, the quote-unquote good things that he's done. And so I kind of want to want to take that up. What do we uh, what do we say when somebody you know, says, oh, well, you're criticizing Tim Keller, you discernment blogger, you know, sitting in, in your mom's basement writing about people and criticizing people. You're criticizing Tim Keller, and don't you know that this guy started the Gospel Coalition? So that's the first question. How do we take that up? Well, okay, and I I think it's, it's, it's a good question for you to ask. I think that the objection... The, obje the objection to criticisms of Keller on the basis that he's a co-founder of the Gospel Coalition is, it's a good question to ask. I think it's a sorry objection for people to make. And the reason is that, uh, let's just look at, let's just look at someone totally different. Let's look at Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll was also a founding member of the Gospel Coalition. That did not keep John Piper, a council member of the Gospel Coalition, from being flatly critical of Mark Driscoll and the satanic victory, that's, that's the words that Piper uh, used of Driscoll, uh, a satanic victory that occurred in the Mars Hill implosion. Now, people can Google Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll to find out what happened at this ministry. But obviously, uh, the objection that you know, Keller is a co-founder of the Gospel Coalition doesn't even carry any weight with founding members of the Gospel Coalition because they've criticized each other for actual mistakes that they made regarding their preaching ministry. And so, in fact, I'll just read what Piper said. He said, the debacle in Seattle is a tragedy from untold angles. Lots of people were hurt. It was a defeat for the gospel. It was a defeat for Mark. It was a defeat for evangelism. It was a defeat for reformed theology and uh, for complementarianism. Uh, it, was a, it was a defect. And he, he just, he went on and on and on about what was wrong with Mark Driscoll's ministry? And Mark Driscoll was a founding member of the Gospel Coalition. And nobody pulled Piper aside, to my knowledge, and said, hey, you can't say that about Mark Driscoll. He's a founding member of the Gospel Coalition. But, but let's, just, let's just move on and talk about Keller's credentials. People will say, but Keller has a degree from Gordon Con uh, Conwell Theological Seminary. Um, uh, well, so did Scott and Kimberly Hahn. They were Presbyterian. They got their degrees at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and um, and then they left and became Roman Catholic. Uh, they have the same credentials as Keller. And so should we stop criticizing Scott and Kimberly? They have credentials after all. Um, but but let's just think about for a second. You know, when someone gives you a resume and they they say these are Tim Keller's 
credentials. It's, it's a circular argument for them to make if his credibility is actually what's being called into question. Credential means to be believable. To be credentialed means to be believable. That you know, the word credential comes from the word credo or faith, to believe in somebody or to, to, to say that someone is believable because they have these credentials. So if you say, well, I don't think that Kell is trustworthy. I don't think that he's believable. I think he says some things that are wrong. So, you know, in other words, I do not have any credence in Keller. And to simply back, come back and say, well, here are his credentials, it's just basically saying, you can't say he's not believable because he's believable. Uh, you can't say he, he's, he shouldn't be listened to because he has credentials. Well, they're simply restating what it is that you're objecting to. So I don't think his credentials matter because I don't think that he is trustworthy with preaching and I don't think he's believable. They go, well, how can you say that? He's so believable. You know, that's actually part of the problem. They've basically built a wall of credentials around Keller that say that he's unassailable. And everybody knows that you know, nobody's infallible and people make mistakes and Keller has made his share. Um, I just want to, to just highlight something that shows what a problem it is that this wall of credentials that has been built around Keller so that people protect him from criticism. Uh, Keller has an article written in the year 2000, although I know that he's been preaching this message long before 2000, but the, the white paper he wrote is called The Centrality of the Gospel. So uh, here is a man preaching about the gospel. He's got credentials. And we expect that because he's got credentials, he's been to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, he's been in the preaching ministry for years, we think that he probably has a pretty good grasp of Scripture and the Gospels and, uh, and church history. Let's just, let's just stipulate that. So Keller writes this article called The Centrality of the Gospel. And in this, it's the, it's the key to continual deeper spiritual renewal through the rediscovery of the Gospel. So part of how Keller thinks the gospel is to be applied is that you, and he uses this, uh, this term, he says, you've got to beat justification into our heads. You just have to beat justification into our heads. And he was actually using this to support the recent movement of gospel sanctification, where you don't preach the law to people because they don't need to hear about the law. The only way to sanctify people is just keep on beating justification into their heads. And he invokes Luther's commentary on Galatians 2.14. And, and he said, see, in Galatians 2.14, Luther's commenting on it, and he says, we've got to continually beat justification into our heads. And the implication is that Luther was talking about beating justification in the heads of believers. But if you go back and look at Luther's actual commentary, he was not commenting on Galatians 2.14, but on Galatians 2.4. Well, Galatians 2.4 was about the false brethren trying to sneak in. And Luther was saying, you know those false brethren that come in that really don't understand justification by faith? you got to keep beating justification into their heads. So, so here's, here's Luther saying, you beat justification into the heads of these people that are criticizing justification by faith alone, these unbelievers. And Keller took that and mistakenly applied it to believers and invoked Luther's name uh, to support his conclusion. Well, that, that's just a gross error on Keller's part because he misread Luther's commentary on Galatians. Now, I, I just want to lay that out there because uh, he was supposed to be credentialed. 
This is a man who studied at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's been preaching for all these years. This, this uh, white paper, the centrality of the gospel, has been quoted and quoted and quoted, circulated throughout the world, and it's been invoked in all sorts of different com commentaries. And yet he's actually wrong in his application of what Luther's commentary was on Galatians. Now, that seems like such a small thing, but the question is, why didn't anybody check? And you know why? They didn't check because he's Tim Keller, and he's got credentials. And so uh, an error which is a pretty easy error to discover if you just go back and double check what was Luther actually talking about, has been recited and circulated and, and actually preached as if it was uh, accurate history because of Keller's credentials. And that's the mistake that people get into by building a wall around Keller and saying he's unassailable, can't be touched, you have to take what he says at face value and not question it. And, and it's dangerous to have someone who functions as a pope within the PCA and the wall around him serves in that purpose to maintain his position on the throne. And it's a very dangerous place for the PCA to be and frankly, it's a dangerous place for Tim Keller to be. Yeah, that, I'm really glad that you brought up that example of uh, Luther uh, because one of the criticisms that we, we get a lot is that we're taking Tim Keller out of context. And, uh, but, I want to get to that in a minute. Uh, you know uh, the the context issue. Um, let me let me go ahead and well, Carlos uh, Owen, did you guys have anything to add to that? No, just that I think it's particularly bizarre for Protestants of all people to say that uh, individuals are <laughs> sort of unassailable when I mean it's the scriptures of the common ground and the ultimate authority and we should be holding people's opinions against the scripture. And every Protestant would agree with this. Every Protestant would point to the Bereans and say that's who we're supposed to be and they were fact-checking Paul. So how much more than should we be fact-checking people who aren't apostles? Hey, are you, yeah. uh, are you pointing to the uh, bearded Bereans there, Owen? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, we should all be like the bearded Bereans. It's a good <laughs> podcast. Go listen. <laughs> give, give a shout out to, to Eric and the crew. All right. Uh, that they're yeah. another uh, they're another podcast on our network. So, all right, what's yeah. up, Carlos? Yeah, and I just if uh, a lot of the stuff that Brother Kaufman touched on, he has an excellent article on called "Sanctification Half Full: The Myopic Hermeneutic of the Grace Movement." It's on the Trinity Foundation. If you want more information about what he just said, and I wanted to add a little bit to that as well because it's basically Romanism to say that you know that's exactly what Owen was saying. It's it's Romanism to to elevate people that way and every time that happens the church has always gotten into trouble and um, rightly so and the, the this is there's a similar phrase that's attached to this kind of stuff and I'm sure you all have probably heard it particularly in charismatic circles uh, where people say don't touch God's anointed you know touch not my anointed do my prophets no harm and and you know they're quoting a verse from the Bible in first in first chronicles 1622 and Psalm 105 15 but it's interesting because the actual context of those passages is that the because it was actually um, admonishing the kings not to kill the prophets because that was a problem in Israel um, because the kings would so often reject what the prophets would say and try to have them killed. And so it doesn't mean you can't criticize them. Of course you can criticize. Uh, you know, if somebody's doing something wrong, obviously they're not above scrutiny. And so, um, and also you have... Just to give another uh, example, you have the Ephesian church, 
and the Ephesian church, when God departs from them, he tells them, you know, I did not uh, fail to neglect the whole counsel of God to you. And he warned them of the, of the, of the false apostles that would come in. And in Revelations 2, Christ actually um, commends them. He commends them for saying, for, for, for this. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have, per you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So, yeah, it's the, it's the responsibility and the duty of every Christian and of every believer to be discerning. Um, and I think part of the criticism that applies to this as well is like, well, who are we? You know, who are we to to call Tim Keller out? You know, we're not, you know, we're not even pastors. We're not, you know, we're 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 just pew warmers, right? So, do we even have a right to call these people out? Well, I, I agree with you, Carlos. I think that in some ways we are being asked to sit in the pews and keep our mouths shut, and uh, I don't think that that is what we're called to do. I do think that we need to be respectful in how we do it, and I think that venues like this are perfectly appropriate for it. Uh, my big concern, obviously, is that if somebody does pipe up and say, wait, I disagree with something that Keller's saying, and if they get shot back down because you just don't question Tim Keller, that's a, it, it's, it's dangerous for everybody. It's dangerous for denomination. It's dangerous for Tim Keller, and it's dangerous for the sheep. Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, that's excellent stuff. Uh, uh, Carlos, I think you said uh, when God departed the uh, Ephesians, uh, but I think you meant to say when Paul left the Ephesians. Uh, so anyways, and that's, that's in <laughs> yeah. Acts chapter 20. But, uh, okay, so, so the, next, uh, the next thing that we hear is uh, they'll say, uh, let me pull it up, it's uh, objection number two. They'll say, uh, well, if what you were saying is true about Tim Keller, uh, then he would have been disciplined by the PCA, uh, but he is a reformed pastor in good standing. And so, Brother Kaufman, I think uh, you're you're a Presbyterian. Uh, yeah. I think you could probably speak to this uh, better than we can. What would you say to that? Well, you know, the the argument, the objection that if if what you're saying is true, then Keller would have been disciplined by now by the PCA. It presumes that the PCA is actually really good at church discipline, and it presumes that the PCA hasn't bought into to Keller's personality as authoritative. Uh, but in a lot of ways, they have. He's he's considered untouchable. You you can't advance a charge against him. Uh, but but I think most most importantly, there are many men in the PCA who recognize that there is a problem with Keller. And further, that there's a problem with the PCA's disciplinary methods or the lack of disciplinary methods. In 2014, Pastor Andy Webb and the Session of Providence PCA in Fayetteville, North Carolina, adopted a, a position statement called Five Reasons Why It Might Be Time to Leave the PCA. The number one reason was the PCA's failure to exercise discipline. So even people in the PCA recognize that the PCA is not properly exercising exercising discipline. If the PCA's own elders and sessions are calling out the PCA and not exercising good discipline, then you can't say that if Keller really was in error, then the PCA would have disciplined by him by now. Not if they're not good at discipline. <laughs> and in fact, uh, as, as uh, I think it was uh, in, in reason four out of the five reasons that Webb gave, 
he calls out Tim Keller for promoting theistic evolution and laments the fact that no attempt has been made at any level to discipline him for this. So you have people in the PCA saying, we're not good at discipline, and Tim Keller's an example of how bad we are at discipline. So it's not a legitimate argument to say that Keller would have been disciplined if he was wrong, because it's based on an assumption that, as it turns out, is not true. That assumption is that the PCA is good at discipline. It's not good at discipline, and one of the fruits of that is Tim Keller is allowed to continue unquestioned. You know, it's interesting. I asked uh, somebody about the theistic evolution problem, and uh, what they told me was that this is one view that's within the bounds of orthodoxy because Tim Keller holds that view. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, you know, I guess that's one way to look at it. I wouldn't yeah. agree. As if Tim Keller was the measure of orthodoxy. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. And, and because nobody has tried to discipline uh, people like Keller uh, for for these errors. Um, so, all right, let me, uh, let me get to the question number three, or objection number three. These aren't questions. These are objections. Um, they say, uh, okay, so they say, uh, if what you're saying is true, others would have noticed it too, and they're referring to other prominent people. But why haven't people like D.A. Carson, and, uh, you know, R.C. Sproul and, uh, you know, John MacArthur. Why haven't uh, any of these people in the mainstream brought this out? And, I mean, this goes back to the criticism of us that, you know, we're just discernment bloggers sitting in our mom's basement uh, taking shots at people so that we, we can build a name for ourselves. And they point to this. It's like, you know, nobody else is seeing this but you. And I think, for, for me personally, I think that was a big struggle in going through our experience. Uh, Carlos and I, had a, had a, we were at the same church. We had a very similar experience. But when we were there, uh, this, was, this was big. It was like, nobody's seeing this but you. And, uh, and it, really, it really affected me because it's like, okay, I don't want to be a Steve Anderson. I don't want to be a Westboro Baptist you know, knucklehead out there. Uh, just out there, you know, on my on my soapbox, and I'm the only one out there, and I'm I'm unhinged. So, uh, what do you guys think about that objection? Well, I'll, yeah. I'll throw in my two cents and listen to what y'all have to say. But when you talk about the mainstream, you're talking about the majority, and when you're talking about the majority, you're talking about you know mob justice. Okay. They're saying, hey, if everybody else is doing it, then it must be the right thing. And that is not how we arrive at truth. And first of all, you know, the, so why hasn't anybody else noticed it? Well, at least a session in North Carolina noticed it. They raised objections to it. But the scripture tells us, thou shalt not follow a multitude to, to do evil. And neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. In other words, we're not allowed. It's simply not our prerogative as Christians to weigh orthodoxy against the standard of a majority. Say, well, most people seem to be this way, and although this is what the scriptures say, still, though, the majority would have it this way. We really need to go with the majority. The scripture says that's evil. It's not our prerogative to do that. We do need to measure Keller against the standards of scriptures instead of measuring Keller against the standard of the majority or measuring Keller against the standard of Keller as if Keller was the measure of orthodoxy. So. I don't think it's our prerogative to remain silent and say, 
well, if most people believe it, then it must be good or it must not be harmful. We have to go back to the scripture and say, is what Keller actually saying, is it actually true? Yeah, absolutely. I think that part of this um, this issue centers a lot on on the. I guess there's two fallacies at play in situations like these. There's the ad populum fallacy, appealing to the masses, and then there's a there's a to authority. And in our situation, in in Tim Tim's in our situation when we were at the church, they basically didn't really think that what we had to say was carried any weight because there was nobody else in the in within the, the denomination and or there uh that that was seeing what we were seeing or or that there was nobody whom they held in high esteem or whom they considered to be um you know respectable teachers nobody was calling that was calling keller out and so that really bothered me um because it's almost like well you know doesn't paul say that we're going to judge angels I mean, do, are we not, are you, are you not capable of, you know, looking at what we're telling you and simply going through the scriptures and examining this stuff? I mean, you know, why do we, why is that always, it's not necessary. I mean, obviously it's not necessary to do that. Does it help, does it help your case? Sure. It can help your case, but it can also not help your case if people aren't aware of it. You know, I mean, it's, um, that to me was a very frustrating thing that it's just, I think a lot of times pastors a lot of pa- a lot of um, I guess uh, pastors are afraid to put their foot down, and that seems to be another problem, where they become very hesitant or reluctant because nobody else has done it before within their movement, and they're afraid to be putting their foot down because well you know they might be wrong or they could have repercussions or or you know things of that sort. But um, yeah, to me that was a very frustrating uh, situation um, with respect to those those um, those issues. Well, let me let me ask a follow-up question to that. Uh, very similar. Um, why why do you guys think uh, he hasn't been called out by some of these more prominent guys? Because well, what I, what I've experienced is that you say something, and then it's it's almost like what you say has to be affirmed by. And this this goes back to Driscoll. We we were criticizing Driscoll long before it was in the mainstream. And then it was kind of, I mean, it was vindicating when uh, other people of prominence were starting to come up and say the same things that we were saying. And and then, you know, there was that whole debacle. Uh, Brother Tim, you, uh, Timothy, you you had already uh, talked about that. But why why is it that people are slow or just reluctant, people of prominence? Why aren't they calling this out? Well, I, I think that part of it is ignorance. Um, so, so if I were, you know, several things that I've pointed out to people is that Keller is constantly invoking counter-reformational mystics in order to, that's whatever his agenda is. You know, I, I sometimes find that I have to actually educate people on the fact that there was a counter-reformation those counter-reformational mystics were trying to mount an offense against the uh, advances that Luther and Calvin had made. And when you say that there were counter-reformational mystics that were working militantly against the advances of the gospel, uh, a lot of times they were not even aware that there was such thing as a counter-reformation. 
The second thing is that they have a very difficult time believing that Keller could be on the side of the Counter-Reformation. So if you say, hey, he's, he's invoking the Counter-Reformational mystics, <laughs> and the Counter-Reformational mystics were against the gospel, I think it's really a hard thing to, to believe that here's a guy who goes around claiming to preach the gospel and teach people about Christ, and he's on the wrong side of history. And there's an unwillingness to believe something so terrible about Tim Keller, and yet he very clearly is on the wrong side. He's, he relies on the counter-reformational mystics for his meditation. He relies on um, a communist Roman Catholic uh, priests for his uh, economic policy. And so you say things like that out loud, and people say, no, no, not, not my Keller. <laughs> I, I've studied books by Keller. I've really been ministered to by Keller. And there's this bias toward Keller that prevents people from being able to see that what he's saying is false. Part of it has to do with ignorance. People have to be taught that, you know, there was a counter-reformation. <laughs> and the second thing is there's such a thing as Marxism, and you need to know about it. This is how Keller's advancing it. And I, I was, the third thing is it's a cult of personality. He's a guy that's just larger than life. And who would dare speak against someone that's larger than life? Yeah, I agree. that I think this is a very complicated... Uh, there's a lot of issues that basically come into play all at once. And I know that um, in our situation as well... And, and people, we've heard that before too. You know, I've been so ministered and blessed by Keller's books and this, that, and the other. How could he possibly be bad? He's actually helped my understanding of the gospel and so on and so forth. But then... Um, we've actually seen the effects that Keller's teaching has on churches. We've seen it ourselves. We've witnessed that firsthand um, in the church that Tim and I used to go to. I mean, we would see how the pastors would basically say things like, everybody is, is, is caught up in, in legalism. Everybody is flagellating themselves. And just, um, you know, one time the, the pastor told a story about how there was a, um, he was t having a conversation with somebody and he said, what do you think, you know, what do you think you have to do to go to heaven? And then he said, you have to be good like Jesus. And he said he was so grieved by that. It's like, oh, this poor soul, he's just berating himself with his, with his sins and, and trying to be, uh, earn his way and he just can't. It's like, well, no, not necessarily. I mean, I'm sure if he had asked him a follow-up question saying, do you think you're good enough to get there? 99% of the time, you're going to hear people say yes, because there is a generation that uh, it seems right in its own eyes. I mean, the problem, it grossly warps reality when, when you have those kinds of teachings affecting your church because you just, that's, that's just simply not true. In fact, the opposite is in fact true, at least from what I've seen and from what the Bible, my understanding of scriptures is that most people think they are self-righteous. They think they are, that they don't have anything to worry about. So, yeah, the, uh, the perception that was given was that this individual needed grace and it's like, well, okay, um, no, I, I think uh, Ray Comfort did a, a pretty good job in his evangelism series where he asked uh, people, you know, if uh, if they could name 10 beers and then uh, people could name 10 beers. And then he said, well, what are the Ten Commandments? And they, they fumbled through like a few of them. And, you know, he, he does a good job of, of asking people, hey, so do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? And the majority, the vast majority like Carlos said, are self-righteous and they, yeah, I'm, I'm good enough because they have no concept of God's holiness and their wickedness. 
And so it's just that that Keller perspective that you know that that hyper grace movement that that we were seeing. So yeah, I definitely agree with what what you said there. Um, let's uh, let me ask the the next question. Uh, and uh, let me see. Oh, that was question three. So this one, I'm going to uh, I'm going to. You know, I think I want to add three questions in one. Uh, number four, five, and uh, the charitable one. So I, I know what it is. I don't know what number it is, but uh, question or objection four is uh, that we have an obligation to reach out to Keller rather than uh, writing against him. Uh, so th this this uh, should be a private matter. And you know what? Th there's actually I, I want to reference an article. There's a really really good article by the late uh, Dr. John Robbins. Um, who who wrote a uh, why heretics uh, win battles and and so I'd encourage everybody to go out there and, and read that we'll put it up in the show notes uh, it's outstanding but uh, and it sort of touches on this so for for more information on this question go read that article uh, and then question uh, five or objection five is uh, uh, what do you think what do you think uh, Keller would say if you told him this and then the one that I want to tag on to this is uh, that we're not being charitable to Keller. Uh, so um, I'll let you guys tackle that. Well, uh, I will I will go ahead and take a shot at that. Uh, I know from what, uh, I think you've got a video link that you provided to me that included an audio conversation that Keller had, is that he tends not to accept or listen to critics because if someone is critical, it's probably because they have have not read or don't understand what he's saying. And uh, you know that I, I suppose I wanted to eliminate that objection immediately by simply saying that I, I have studied Keller and I've lis listened to what he said, and what I've learned about his narrative is is by listening to his own audio series about how to preach Christ from every text and by reading his books. On prayer, on uh, let's see, every good endeavor, um, counterfeit gods, generous justice. Uh, I've, I've read his books. I've listened to his 18-hour lecture series on how to preach Christ from every text. And I've also listened to the Q, Q and A's. You know, the fact is, you know, I have studied Keller, and I think that I have systematized his exegetical method and found it wanting. So the problem is that I haven't listened to him or I haven't taken him in context or I haven't invested the time. The fact is I've, I've studied Keller and I've found explicit errors in what he is saying and how he's using some of the uh, some of the giants of the faith like Luther and others that he is misrepresenting them, but also how he's taking scripture out of its context. He's leaving parts of scripture out because they don't, they're not consistent with his own personal narrative. Uh, you know, the, the fact is I have studied Keller, and he already says that if someone's critical, he's not going to listen to critics. So we know that he's not going to listen to us. But importantly, the scripture says that we should have no fellowship with the unfruitful work of works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And to reprove something is to say it out loud and explain what's wrong with it. I mean, uh, we have plenty of cases of scripture where People are saying, well, this is what these people think, and what they think is wrong, and that's why we don't think that way. 
Um, or this is what this guy did that was wrong and he shouldn't have done that. It was wrong for him to do that. That's why we don't do it that way. When you have a matter of the gospel and the matter of scripture and history and someone on a public platform saying these things, uh, you have to be able to respond and say what he said in this session in public from his pulpit on this date was incorrect for this, this, and this reason. Uh, but, but also follow up and say, uh, why doesn't anybody tell Keller that if he disagrees with his critics, that he should go and talk to them face to face instead of saying out loud that he disagrees with them? <laughs> no one would ever say that to Keller. Uh, no one would ever say, uh, you shouldn't talk about how you disagree with your critics. You need to go to them one-on-one face-to-face. It's a, I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's absolutely double standard. I just think that it, it exposes the, how ridiculous the objection is. Keller writes book after book after book, and he's preaching from the pulpit. He's speaking at different conferences, and he's publishing white papers. You know, who could possibly keep up with all that? And then to say that even though he has this gigantic, public international ministry that spans denominations and continents that if we disagree with them we have to go to them one-on-one it's a it's a ridiculous objection the fact is he's saying things out loud as if it was the truth of god and we are commanded in the scriptures to correct that and that's what we're doing well so what is what does charitability look like because a lot of times people will say well you're not being charitable uh, with Keller, and the, the, I find it so funny because people will tell me, well, what Keller's trying to say, and it's like, wait, 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 hold on. If you have to tell me, it, 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 the gospel is simple, and and if you have to tell me what Keller's trying to say, but he's not saying it because he's botching it, then he shouldn't be teaching, but he is, and he's putting out these books. And so people will, will say, you know, well, what Keller's really trying to say here, and and they'll they'll tell me that I'm not being charitable, or you know that we're not being charitable, and that we're not we're not reading into what Keller's writing the best possible conclusion, if that makes sense. So so it, I mentioned this to you in an earlier conversation, but uh, we do need to talk about what does it mean to be charitable. You know, if we're to speak the truth in love, then speaking the truth is not unloving. As long as it's because you love the truth and you love your neighbor. And Tim Keller is our neighbor. There's no doubt about that. But as you observed, uh, speaking the truth in love has been interpreted to mean agreeing with error to avoid conflict. (laughs) And when you... When you define love as agreeing with error to avoid conflict, that's actually to love peace more than you love the truth. And it's simply not our prerogative to say we, we, we love peace so much that truth can be compromised. We do need to react to Keller, and we need to do so honestly and lovingly. But it would be grossly uncharitable for us to let Keller to continue down this path, which is so dangerous for him, without hindering him in some way and saying, stop, you need to get off of this path, which is the path of destruction, and start returning to the roots of Christianity, which is the revealed word of God. I think that Keller, 
uh, has a, a tremendous weakness there that because he is so persuaded that his own opinion is correct that he actually allows it to stand in judgment of scripture itself there's no doubt that Keller has done that and I think that it would be uncharitable of us to sit back and just let him slide down that slippery slope slope to his own heart so somebody needs to love Keller enough to discipline him to challenge him him and what he's saying and pointing out what's wrong yeah I think that's excellent because uh, and it's almost in many ways analogous to uh, uh, the LGBTQ complaint against uh, their objectors where they equate disagreement with love or a uh, lack of love or hatred and you start to disagree with them and it's well you're not loving me or you hate me and uh, you know I mean, we can fall into a similar we can fall into a similar trap you know my, my criticism can be taken as hatred or uh, an unloving uh, approach and and it's not it's I, I love the truth more so Carlos you had something to say yeah um, just to, I forgot to mention this before but as you know people who don't really well-respected a lot of well-respected people haven't called out Keller and but there have been some I know we pointed that out some a few out already and Paul Elliott is another one uh, who I believe is a Presbyterian he's called Tim Keller out um, a lot he's written articles against him as well and, and um, so it, even then it doesn't really matter if you don't know or if somebody you don't know hasn't called them out like that that doesn't really mean anything um, and another thing to just to add to to this stuff is um, first of all we are taking Keller at his word we're not being unchecked because a lot of people will say like we're taking him out of context and things like that and but that's just not the case we are taking Keller at his word it's the people who try to interpret Keller in his original context using other uh, of his books to try to to try to somehow um, make Keller say what he didn't say in the original context that's being uncharitable and then you have the other question or the other issue of um, you know calling people out publicly as opposed to privately first of all and I think that a lot of this just is a misunderstanding of how church discipline is supposed to be carried out because we're not here sitting gossiping and talking about Keller's private matters or his private life we don't know Keller personally we're simply talking about what he has said in public and what he what he has published in public with his own name on it stuff that he promotes as Christianity and so he, the damage has already been done he's already published his books and he's continuing to publish more his influence is spreading every day but practically um, so it's an absurd notion to say that oh well we can't we need to see him private how are we gonna he's in New York and his influence is, is way vastly overreaching New York so the damage has already been done and he's doing this publicly of course we're supposed to be calling it out publicly this is a public matter it's not a private matter so I think that's a lot of a misunderstanding that also can, um, comes into play when when dealing with these matters but yeah alright so the next uh, the next one is um, people will try to tell us that Keller is trying to reach the unchurched demographic and so he's using different language rather than the typical Christianese that we hear and so this this complaint is basically well you know Keller's saying the same thing you're saying he's just not saying it the way that you are used to or the way that you 
would like him to. He's trying to reach people who who've never been to church, who who don't know the gospel, and so he's just he's using a different language for them. Well, you know, here let me. <laughs> it's not that Keller's using a different language to say the same thing. He's actually using the same language to say something very different. <laughs> you know, when when Keller wants to preach an edgy sermon to people who generally don't have any respect for uh, for the church, don't like the church, um, and identify you know Bible thumping wingnuts like us as the problem, and Keller wants to get them into the church. Uh, Keller says, hey, uh, you don't need to be uh, offended by the church um, uh, because the, the obedient Bible believers are the problem. He says Jesus was rejected by obedient Bible believers. And so in some ways, he's tickling the ears of these people who don't like the Bible. They don't like uh, self-righteous hypocrits in the church. They don't like uh, people that actually try to preach the, the word and say this is uh, this is what it means what, what the scripture says to us what Christ left for us when he sent the Holy Spirit he inspired the apostles to write these things down to instruct us you know some people don't like that and, and Keller admits that that's part of his crowd that he preaches to and he wants to bring them in and so what does he say he says Jesus was rejected by obedient Bible believers well that's actually not true Jesus was not rejected by obedient Bible believers. He was rejected by the Pharisees, and he repeatedly characterizes those Pharisees as disobedient people and unbelieving people. So the scriptures actually say something, and notice that I'm using common language. I'm not actually, this is, when, when Keller says Jesus was rejected by obedient Bible believers, he's using the same, the same Christianese that I'm using. And I say, no, Jesus was not rejected by obedient Bible believers. He was rejected by disobedient unbelievers. There's nothing confusing about the language either one of us is using. It's just that what Keller's saying is false. <laughs> so, so the charge remains that Keller says false things to try to get people to come into the church, and that should be a problem. That should be a problem for people to read. You know, if you're familiar with the scriptures and you understand what the scriptures say, but the Pharisees were an unbelieving, disobedient people. And they're the ones that rejected Jesus. And the fact is, he taught people to be obedient Bible believers. And it's, it's Keller saying a very plain statement that is demonstrably false. It's not like he's saying the same thing I am, but using a different language to do it. Because he would have to actually be saying the same thing as I am. But he's not. He's saying exactly the opposite. So I think... Keller confuses people by just throwing statements out there that are just patently false. And it's just, well, I'm just saying it in a different way than you would be saying it. No, he's, he's actually saying something the exact, exact opposite of the truth. It needs to be called out on that. It's not about having some sort of generous, charitable, new way of saying an old truth. He's actually saying a falsehood, and he needs to be corrected on it. Yeah, I think you often, we've heard this often before, with respect to Keller and how, you know, he's he's talking to unchurched people in New York. So you have to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt that he, you know, he's trying to adjust his message to those types of people. Yeah, but the problem with that is that Keller is publishing a book nationally. And not only that, he's actually saying, he himself has said that everybody's a legalist or everybody has the same problem. And so it's much 
it's actually a lot easier to just say that Keller is wrong rather than trying to defend him because then they're actually going against what he's saying himself too he because he he's made it clear that everybody has the same problem we all basically have a problem of legalism and it's the bible obedient pharisaical pharisees that are wrong for for you know uh criticizing basically we're wrong in other words but you know that's that's always i think i think a, a more a fundamental underlying issue behind this is that there's faulty understandings of Christianity at play, and ultimately they're just not compatible with the Bible. Well, and not only that, but I mean, we need to point out that the 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 message of the gospel is amazingly simple. It's not so complicated that you have to try to say it in a way that people will understand. I mean, you're not talking to idiots. You're talking to people who are rational, who who are made in the image of God, have the the ability to be rational to think clearly and so what do we do we preach the word faithfully and i mean the, the the gospel and the message of the gospel transcends culture so every culture has the same problem every person has the same problem and that's the message that they need to hear is that that there's hope in jesus christ that they that they're a sinner that they're going to stand before holy and a righteous god uh, who will judge them in their sins? And so, if you're if you're trying to reach the unchurched, the people who who've never been to church, the people who who've never heard about Jesus, um, that's that's the message that they need to hear. And you don't need to alter it or change it or say it in in some language that that you think they'll understand. Just be faithful and and preach what it, what it is. Okay, let me uh let me go ahead and um, continue then. Uh, and I'm not sure if we're going to get through all of these. Uh, so, okay, I think this is this is a big one that needs to be tackled. Uh, it's objection number seven um, that we are taking Keller out of context, uh, and then people will try to explain what Keller is actually what they think that Keller is actually saying. And um, <clears throat> what what I uh, this this almost comes up immediately when I when I uh, get a criticism. As a matter of fact, I did see one criticism of my article, and the individual that criticized my article was saying that I was taking Keller out of context. Um, what what I find very interesting, and I'll actually issue a challenge to people uh, who who accuse me of taking Keller out of context. I'll tell them. Uh, and I'll actually reference the the example that uh, Brother Kaufman just gave us uh, about Keller taking Luther out of context. And then the the other one is uh, so the article that I wrote uh, concerning uh, Tim Keller was a, a review of his book, The Prodigal God. And in that book, on page uh, forty five, uh, and I believe this is the Kindle version of the book, so I'm not sure if it's 45 in the in the actual paper edition. But Keller is he's he's talking about the humbler in, the prouder out, and he he references he he says he says Jesus says quote the humbler in and the prouder out end quote see Luke 18:14. And I found that peculiar because I, I went and I was like, I don't, I don't think that's what it says. Um, 
and and I, I expounded the what the text actually says in my article, but I found that odd. Uh, you know, he's quoting Jesus, and I, I went and I looked it up, and it's like, okay, well, Jesus didn't actually say that. And then so I, I, I kind of you know uh, alerted me to to him doing this, and uh, then I, I noticed in in a page. Let me see, page 80 of the Kindle edition, he starts uh, lamenting, uh, he's writing about how the, the older brother and the prodigal, the prodigal son, that the older brother should have gone after the younger brother, okay? And, you know, I'm not even sure if I agree with that, because there is a, a, a case where, you know, Paul says to, to hand them over to, to Satan, um, and so I'm not even sure, I don't even know if I agree with that, but... Uh, in in that uh, on that page, he references the story of Cain and Abel, and he says in that story, God tells the resentful and proud older brother, "quote You are your brother's keeper." I had to go back and uh, look up uh, the the story of uh, of uh, Cain and Abel, and I went to, I I remember doing this. I went to Bible Hub. And I looked up because Bible Hub uh, has like every uh, edition, Bible edition listed. And, I, you know, it's like, okay, maybe maybe it didn't say it in the ESV. Maybe it was changed a, a little bit. But nowhere does God actually say that. And so he puts it in quotations. And I realized he's basically rewriting the story to fit his narrative. And he's taking the text completely out of context. And so going back to uh, the humble, where, where Jesus says the humble are in and the proud are out, well, no, that's that's not what Jesus was saying at all. Jesus was confronting uh, Pharisees who were trusting in themselves, and the, the depiction of uh, of the, the man in that text is is one who is trusting in the Lord. And so you have people who are, um, you know, Mormon who will say say stuff like you know oh well i'm not good enough to get to heaven and you know that's why i need a savior and then you find out that they're mormon and they're trusting in a false jesus christ and you're saying to yourself well he's showing humility but he's trusting in a false christ and so i found this to be very problematic and my challenge to people and i'm i'm going to issue this challenge right now to to the individual who who criticized me on that point is that I can quote Keller accurately. I can quote Keller correctly. Now, find me in the verse, find me in the Bible, please point it out, where Jesus actually makes that statement because Keller is quoting Jesus. And, and I'm fine with, with somebody saying, you know, well, you know, summarizing a view, but to actually put it in quotations and make it sound like that's actually what Jesus is saying. I think is a little bit different. So find find for me in the text where God makes that statement uh, to Cain, you are your brother's keeper, or Jesus makes that statement, the humble are in and the proud are out. And I'll just remind people, I, I'd like people to go back and read my article, I'll just remind people that on the basis of that misquote from Jesus in, in Luke 18, Keller affirms G.K. Chesterton, a Roman Catholic, as quote as somebody who got the message of Jesus, when uh, the the message of Jesus was was plainly stated, I think in uh, what is it Mark fifteen one, 
let me let me look it up um where he says uh yeah mark oh mark 115 my dyslexia kicked in forgive me uh jesus says quote repent and believe the gospel now that's an actual quote of something that jesus actually said and so here he affirms a roman catholic gk chesterton on the basis of this misquote taking jesus out of context so that's my piece about that uh any other thoughts on that well what about if people say god resists the pride but gives grace to the humble is maybe that what they meant is that what keller meant look so, so here, here's what, what what i think is is going on of course humility is part of the whole but keller substitutes the uh the part for the whole so yes if you are if you are saved i mean you're going to be humble god gives grace to the humble there's there's definitely you look at uh luke 18 and uh the the, the man is exercising humility okay but that's not that's not the whole picture the that's that's part of the picture and what keller does is he substitutes the part for the whole um so yeah and exactly right and that's why oh, he was that a test question no 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 i was just well yeah i get yeah right i'm trying to play devil's advocate but okay okay that's obviously fine. obviously that's why that's why he can validate somebody like gk chesterton who is a roman catholic as somebody who grasped the message of jesus jesus because that's not the whole that it's misrepresenting the biblical teaching obviously you have to repent and believe the gospel which the very gospel that Roman that the Church of Rome rejects. So, right. Right, and ultimately, uh, because because Chesterton was was believing in in the gospel of works. To in, in order to believe in the gospel of just that you're justified by faith and works, you have to believe in some sense that you are ultimately uh, that there's some part of you that's good enough to earn merit, and that right there is not humility, not at all. And so in order for, for Chesterton to affirm the Roman Catholic Church, in order for Je Chesterton to affirm the, the false gospel of Rome, uh, he, he ultimately was not humble. And so what he expressed was, was it was an expression of feigned humility, fake humility. Um, so, yeah. What about you, Brother Coffin? Do you have anything to, to add to that? Yes, if you, you know... I now, I, I understand what you're saying here. We're speaking in the context of people saying that we're taking Keller out of context and misquoting him. And yet he does that liberally. There's no doubt about that. It's something else I pointed out in, the, in an article I wrote about Keller when he, he's writing about counterfeit gods of sex and money, invisible gods of, of that sort of vain ambition. But he actually quotes a verse from Ezekiel and says, see, see, here's a verse about the idols of the heart that actually don't, you can't actually see. And yet the second half of the verse <laughs> plainly refers to visible idols that you can see. But he left that part out because it was inconsistent with his narrative. And he's so liberal in applying his narrative that he ends up misquoting Jesus and misquoting the scriptures in order to advance his narrative. And then when we point it out, people say that we're doing the thing that is actually so objectionable, that Keller's taking Jesus out of context, taking uh, Ezekiel out of context. And, and it's okay for him to do that, apparently, for some people. And then when we point it out, they say that we're taking him out of context. And I, I can see your point. Is there, it's very frustrating to actually bring this to people's attention. And he's doing the very thing they think is wrong, but can't see that he's doing it. It's, uh, but uh, 
I think that you summarized it well. The, uh, the, the, the problem is that he's actually representing his own thoughts as if they were the scriptures, and that's, that's struggling. Well, I, I have a follow-up to that. And since you're talking about taking things out of context and, and claiming that you're taking him out of context, uh, is, it, is it ever the case that you would say something and someone else would be able to come back with uh, a different quote of Keller from some other source? Uh, has that happened to you? And if so, how do you reconcile or how do you deal with that? That's outstanding. Uh, that's an outstanding question because uh, that actually has happened quite a bit. And um, I think that happened with Carlos and I because uh, one, of the, one of the things that we were saying was, and it, we have to be careful with how we explain things, I think. So one of the one of the objections that we had was, uh, and particularly the book The Prodigal God, was that Keller denies the the uh, the doctrine of God's wrath, or he denies God's wrath. And um, as, what what people would do is they would go up, they they would go and look up every sermon that they could find where Keller mentions God's wrath, and they would say, see, he 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 affirms God's wrath. Here it is, right here. Well, two things to that. One is that um, when I say that Keller's denying God's wrath, sure, he uses the word wrath. But what he does is he redefines it so that there's no active role of God in the punishment of the wicked. God's wrath simply becomes alienation, uh, being forsaken, uh, you know, which, which, I mean, covers expiation but not propitiation. And so if you remove propitiation from the gospel, then... Uh, you're in serious trouble because the wrath of God abides on your head. So when when we say that, and this is a very, very, I mean, I think that, that Christians need to wake up to this because this is a very common tactic that I think a lot of false teachers use. They use the same language. Uh, they'll use the, the, the biblical language, but then they'll redefine it. And if you're not if you're not even if you're not even trying to pay attention to that, you eat it up wholesale, thinking, oh, you know, they're good. They 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 said this. So the other thing that that does is if Keller is actually affirming the biblical doctrine of God's wrath, then in other places he's actually denying it. That shows that he's double-minded. And one of the things that we've seen is that Keller will play to his audience. Keller will. Uh, and I think, uh, Brother Kaufman, you, you brought up this example that uh, in, in one, to one audience he says this about Adam and Eve, that, uh, and, and then in the, in the other audience he says this about Adam and Eve, and, uh, and so he plays to his audience. It's whoever he's talking to, he, he molds his message to that. Yes, the, the specific example was that in, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he, he says, hey, listen, uh, Marriage was instituted by God, and uh, it was not the result of evolution in the Bronze Age. It was uh, it was actually instituted by God, and he bases that on on what, as I mentioned, a literal reading of Genesis chapter one, and that was in a book that was ostensibly to people within the church uh, as as a ministry of edification to married couples in his church. Uh, probably a more conservative audience. But when he spoke to the Biologos conference, he says Genesis 1 really can't be taken literally. And uh, yes, Adam and Eve may have been the product of, of evolution. And so, yeah, you could, 
can, can you, if, if the fundamental problem with his hermeneutic, as we pointed out last time, is triangulation, where he tries to find some sort of middle way, then you can't just say, well, he said this over here and he said that over there, and it's the opposite of what he said over there, and therefore he must be okay. It actually highlights the fact that that's exactly what Keller does. He triangulates. He finds something that's true, something that's false, blends them together, and tries to advance it as the third way. It's just exactly what he did with, uh, with Marxism and every good endeavor. He took Karl Marx's theory of alienation and the scriptures about loving your neighbor and turned them into this spiritual third way, which is just simply to import Marxism into the church and, and sell it as if this was the Christian work ethic. That's just what Keller does. If, if his fundamental flaw in his hermeneutic is triangulation, then it overturns this objection because the objection would presume to show, well, he said one thing over here, but he said something else over there, and therefore it's okay. That's actually the problem. <laughs> he says one thing over here and then says something else over here. That's the problem with Keller's hermeneutic. It's, it's not, that, that doesn't excuse him. It just proves just how, how wrong his hermeneutic is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we were confronted with this very issue when, when we tried to bring these criticisms of Keller to, uh, to, the, to the elders of, at the church that we were at, that Tim and I were at. Um, at one point, they started to read to us uh, definitions from Keller's New City Catechism. Um, and, and there you go again. He's basically, he's saying contrary things or contradictory things in different places. That's a very, that it's, there's, there's no surprise there. And that's exactly the problem because, and, and part of what the issue there is, he wrote, he co-wrote that book with Sam Shamus. And so, uh, you know, he's going to clearly take a more orthodox approach in that book because he's, he's trying to, you know, use the, um, the reform tradition to sort of bolster his, or, or try to uh, stay within those bounds of orthodoxy. And he's also co-writing it with somebody else. But then when you look at what Keller says in his own books, when he's the only author, he, he completely contradicts like several of those, of those doctrinal points. So this is part of what can be, I guess this can be very confusing to people and throw people off. It's like, well, he's saying the right thing here. It's like, well, it's not that simple. I mean, he's contradicting himself over here. And when you let Keller speak for himself and by himself, his true colors start to show a lot more. And when you see that, he's, he's very clearly contradicting um, himself and the Bible. So, Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll just give uh, one example of uh, the issue on wrath. Uh, and I brought this out in my article on page 101. Uh, Keller's, uh, he, he writes, uh, he, being Jesus, came and experienced the exile that we deserved. He was expelled from the presence of the Father. He was thrust into darkness, the utmost despair of spiritual alienation in our place. Uh, in our place. And then th this right here, he, uh, th this sentence is, is very troubling. He took upon himself the full curse of human rebellion, cosmic homelessness, so that we could be welcomed into our true home. I'll just say right there that that's patently false. Um, Jesus did take upon himself the full curse of human rebellion. But the full curse of human rebellion is not just simply alienation or cosmic homelessness. Uh, if we go back to Isaiah 53.10, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that God actually had an active role in, in placing that punishment 
that we deserved upon Christ. And when, when, when you reject Christ, you are not just going to experience alienation or cosmic homelessness. You are going to experience the full uh, furious wrath of God, the, the anger being poured, up, poured out on you for eternity in hell. And so Keller redefined, there's, there's a sermon that, that he gives where he redefines hell and he, he, uh, uh, use, he basically reinterprets uh, what hell is, the, the biblical uh, definition of that. But let's, uh, unless you guys had anything to add to that, let's move on to the next one. Well, just one quick. Uh, when Rob Bell came out with Love Wins, I remember you know there's a flurry of articles about him, and one of them said that he wants to speak with an evangelical vocabulary, but have his own dictionary. I think that's a pretty apt way of summarizing it. When people use the same words, but they use them differently. Very true. That is out. That's outstanding. We need to put that on a shirt. It's <laughs> a good quote there. Um, Okay, uh, let me see. Where are we at, guys? Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I want to. I, I do want to address this. Uh, uh, so we have two more. Um, I'm not an expert on this. I think uh, Owen and Carlos and you, brother Kaufman, can speak on this on this issue. But one of the things that people will try to say, uh, they've said this to me, is that Keller is using. Uh, biblical theology rather than systematic theology. Um, and this is a reference to how he uses parables or how he uses uh, illustrations in, in the Bible. Um, and and I, I know that we've, uh, we, we've gone through some of the, um, just talking about New Covenant theology and their, their emphasis on biblical theology. Um, they don't reject systematic theology, but uh, I think uh, Owen and, and Carlos had some good things to say about that, and then also uh, Brother Tim, if you could, if you could uh, tell us what you think about that criticism. Well, I'll I'll say this, and it's consistent with something you brought out in the previous topic, and that is that you know this is the reason that Keller can't bring himself to preach on the last two chapters of Esther. And he says this explicitly, that I don't want to preach that. It's just not consistent with the, the narrative of Scripture. And he says the reason is that at the very end of Esther, the Jews uh, kill all the people that were against them and take all their belongings. And he's referring to Esther, uh, Esther 9, verses uh, 4, let's see, verses uh, 5. It says, thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. <laughs> so Keller says, uh, you know, that's just not consistent with the narrative of scripture. And therefore I never bring it out. His, his direct quote was, he said, in New York, I just never bring that out. I mean, people don't come to church with their Bibles. They study the passage I print out in the text. So I'm just not going to bring that up. Well, anytime that you say, that something in the scripture is inconsistent with the narrative of scripture, then you have to question whether or not you have the right narrative of scripture, because something that is in the scripture is by definition in the narrative of scripture. And he says in another comment commentary on Esther, it just doesn't break down very well. And in other words, Keller is having a hard time fitting the meta narrative. Uh, I'm sorry, fitting 
scripture into its own narrative. And one of the criticisms that I have of biblical theology is it's just so wide open to finding your own personal narrative in the overarching narrative of scripture that you are, it basically gives you license to leave out things that are inconsistent with that and then but still think that you have delivered the overarching narrative of the scriptures to the people. And, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, raising this exact concern with uh, uh, well, the new perspective on Paul movement. It tended to rely more on biblical theology than on systematic theology. And that left people open to developing their own uh, narrative of scripture, the meta narrative, the overarching narrative of scripture. And, and when Keller does this with Esther, it's because he doesn't think that, you know, Jews killing all their neighbors who tried to kill them. He said, well, that's just not consistent with the narrative of Scripture, so I'm just going to leave that out. And, but whereas with systematic theology, you actually, you look at that and say, well, it's definitely in Scripture, and there's something that we can learn from this, and it needs to be taught. And so well, how would we categorize this? Where would we put this? Uh, and that's, that's a much more disciplined approach, I think, to actually bringing out what this text is actually saying. But my concern with the biblical theology, biblical theology as a movement, as, as it were, is that the tendency is to say, I already know what the narrative of Scripture is, and therefore I'm comfortable leaving out parts of Scripture that aren't consistent with that narrative. And I think that's a danger, and it's a danger that I, I dealt with a little bit in uh, when the New Perspective on Paul movement was on the ascendant within the PCA. But uh, I'll, I'll defer to, uh, to, to Owen and... Uh, Carlos for some of their thoughts. Yeah, um, I think this is one of those fundamental differences. This is a fundamental problem, I think, because when you start talking about biblical theology as if it was somehow divorced from or against systematic theology, that's when you have a serious problem. And I think um, a lot of people don't probably, they don't realize the history that these two that these uh that, that where this comes from basically because what happened was that the liberals back in i can't remember if it was the 19th century um i think it was in the 19th century there was liberals in the 19th century who started to promote this biblical theology movement in order to exalt the narrative over um doctrine over systematic theology and so saying basically that their narrative trumps trumps everything and so they were basically using it as, a, as an excuse to undermine and contradict uh, orthodox teaching of Christianity, like justification and propitiation and so on and so forth. And so when this was another, yet another thing that came up when we tried to confront this to, to uh, the church that we used to go to, where they said, well, B Keller's using biblical theological categories to describe, um, as opposed to systematic the theological categories, to, to present his picture or his gospel or the the biblical gospel or, um, you know, his teaching on the parables and so on and so forth. And again, like the problem with that is you're not, these are not supposed to be pitted against each other. They're not supposed to contradict. In fact, you know, like, and we've said this repeatedly on our show before, um, biblical th theology and systematic theology really go hand in hand. And it's all it is, is just a, it's a further development of systematic theology is just a further development of biblical theology. You have what the Bible says, so now go ahead and deduce it. Um, uh, keep deducing further those categories, the system, you know, the, the justification and salvation and so on and so forth, and logically relate them to each other to create a system. And so the problem 
is when you see Keller doing things like, well, we the prob the curse of human rebellion is cosmic homelessness. You just basically denied the biblical teaching because the curse of human rebellion is God's wrath. And so he's he's changing the gospel. He's perverting the gospel by imposing these supposed biblical theological categories of changing the, the biblical teaching of, well, we're all trying to come home, which the Bible says, again, it, it contradicts the Bible because we're not all trying to come home. We're all running away from God in the opposite direction. Uh, it me, referring to we're all trying to come home to the garden, to our original garden in paradise. It's like, no, that's not. The Bible says that we are evil and no one seeks God. How is that even possible? Um, so that's a huge, this is probably one of Keller's most dangerous um, problems because then you'll see how he tries to take this stuff. He'll take the parables and rip them out of their original context, redefine them to fit his own teaching in there, basically, you know, heterodoxy and imposing it, shoving it back into the Bible. And that you, I mean, you, this is why there's so many problems with with his books and his teachings because he does that very thing. False teachers throughout church history have done that very thing, because the parables are supposed to be obscure and you cannot interpret them apart from the interpretation, the explicit interpretation that that Christ Himself gives. And so, um, and I think my my closing comments for this would basically be that, and and I, I appreciate very much Brother Kaufman for the work that he's done in showing how. Keller has repeatedly tried, there's so many problems with Keller and how he tries to basically impose all kinds of worldly philosophy and unbiblical teaching into his Christianity. He tries to infuse Marxism into it. He tries to infuse Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism into it. He tries to infuse liberalism into it. And he, he says that explicitly in his, in his introduction on the reasons for God. I mean, what he's trying to do is the very problem is part of in part what Machen talks about in his book Christianity and Liberalism. Liberalism and Christianity are not the same religion. They are mutually exclusive and you have two very different religions. And the biggest problem with Keller that I've seen is that he is trying to fuse these two together. He's trying to synthesize them together to create some form of hybrid Christianity, which is really not Christianity at all. It's not what the biblical teaching is. You end up creating a, a fabricating a false Christianity because you're trying to impose so much worldliness, so much worldly philosophy and teaching into it. And so um, this is why I think it's very important to, to sound the alarm and to, and to call it out for what it is. Yeah, if someone were to say that Keller is, is, is using biblical theology instead of systematic theology, uh, frankly, I would have to question if they understand what biblical theology means, because it doesn't make any sense in that context. Carlos is right. Biblical theology comes from the 19th century liberalism, which basically did not believe that the, the scripture is true, did not believe that it was inspired, that it's a collection of texts from discrete individuals who can have, who all have their own motives, purposes, aims, and oftentimes those purposes would be in conflict with each other or competing. For example, you could have some prophets who would have a competing emphasis against, say, the, the authors of the Torah, of the law. Um, they would be more focused on mercy, and so it's an internal dialogue and discussion of people who are com coming into conflict with each other. Or in the Gospels, for example, one Gospel author could have a different perspective in contradiction to another Gospel author. That's, that's where that largely originated, the idea of biblical theology. But there is a, a use of the term biblical theology in within the bounds of orthodoxy, and I will actually read from uh, Gerhardus Voss, 
who wrote a book called Biblical Theology, sort of the, the gold standard, so to speak, for evangelical orthodox uh, understanding of what biblical theology is. And I'll just read a little bit from his intro here. The present volume is entitled, this is from the preface, is entitled Biblical Theology. Theology is really unsatisfactory because of its liability to misconstruction. All truly Christian theology must be biblical theology. A more suitable name would be History of Special Revelation, which precisely describes the subject matter of this discipline. Names, however, become fixed by long usage, and the term biblical theology, in spite of its ambiguity, can hardly be abandoned now. Biblical theology occupies a position between exegesis and systematic theology in the Encyclopedia of Theological Disciplines. It differs from systematic theology not in being more biblical or adhering more closely to the truths of the scriptures, but in that its principle of organizing the biblical material is historical rather than logical. Whereas systematic theology takes the Bible as a completed whole and endeavors to exhibit its total teaching in an orderly systematic form, biblical theology deals with the material from the historical standpoint, seeking to exhibit the organic growth or development of the truths of special revelation from the primitive pre-redemptive special revelation given at Eden to the close of the New Testament canon. And so really, when anyone who, is, who, who actually believes the Bible is true uses the term biblical theology, this is the biblical theology that, that we historically are referring to, the history of Revelation, not doctrine inside of a book as opposed to how that doctrine is treated in another book because they're different authors, but the historical unfolding of those doctrines. So in fact, I'd say the charge would be labeled at, at, at Keller that it's the opposite. He takes a systematic conclusion and then enforces that on the text in its individual and discrete form. So for example, instead of taking the book of Esther, and if you were applying her biblical theology, how does doctrine unfold in the entire scheme of things in this book? He would say, I know what the end result is. I'm going to impose it on here. And this last part of the story just doesn't fit with the wider narrative of scripture. So I would say one, the, the person who says that they actually don't know what biblical theology is. And if anything, Keller's doing the exact opposite. Well, I think you guys hit the nail on the head with that one. I really appreciate that. Um, so, okay, uh, two more, and then we're going to wrap up. But um, I think this one is, is really important. Um, it's the charge that we are being divisive. Uh, and, and I remember going through our, uh, our disagreements with the church, and this came up a, a number of times that, you know, uh, and not not by the leaders. I don't remember the the leaders of the church. I'm I'm speaking about other individuals. Um, that you know this that we were being divisive, uh, and that uh, well that we were being divisive. And um, the verse uh, that I wanted to read in in response to this is uh, Romans sixteen seventeen. It reads, "I appeal to you, brothers," and I'm reading from the ESV. "I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions." And create obstacles, that you have been avoid them. So, the what what Paul's addressing here is that those who are really divisive are the ones who are actually teaching wrong, bad theology because it puts doctrine divides. And Owen did a, a great podcast on doctrine divides. Go out and check it out. It's a uh, it's from the uh, it's not Memento Mori. It's a uh, uh, ask, ask a millennial Christian. And no, no, I knew it. I knew it. I just, I, I 
I knew it. Uh, it's Ask a Millennial Christian. Uh, does Doctrine Divide? It's outstanding. Go check it out. He did a great job on that. But um, so when you, when you teach bad theology, when you teach wrong theology, it automatically puts people in, in a position to either choose to, to err with a bad theology or to stand uh, with the truth of God's word. And that, that, that divides. And so those who, are those who are being divisive within the church are those who are teaching false doctrine contrary to what uh, we, we, we hold to. And so I would say that, that Keller is being divisive by uh, teaching uh, contrary to what, what he should hold to as a Presbyterian pastor. And I would say that we are actually not being divisive uh, by calling it out. Well, I'll, I'll tell you my, uh, my favorite method to get my wife to agree with me on something uh, when we're not having an agreement. I'll just say to her, honey, we need to be united. And as far as I can tell, you're the only one who isn't uh, being united. I'm very united. Oh, and, you're, man. <laughs> and, and, and you're not being very united with me. And you need to repent of your divisive spirit. And, uh, you know, I say that. Uh, how how does that go over for you? Oh. <laughs> it doesn't matter because I always win. So, no, the, uh, you know, but, but you see the, the futility of saying, you know, we need to be united on this. And as far as I can tell you, you're the only one that's not being united. What you're really saying is that I want you to stop disagreeing with me because to disagree with me is to be divisive. And that is exactly what is being foisted on us when people say you are just being divisive. If I and I think that we should appeal to uh, to Elijah here because he was accused of being divisive, and he said, "No, I'm not. You're being divisive." <laughs> and this is from First Kings 18, verses 17 to 18. And uh, Ahab did not like Elijah. Elijah was preaching the truth. He was one of the few that was. And it says, "And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel?'" And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and has followed Balaam. So here, here's Elijah saying, someone saying, you're being divisive by preaching the truth. And, and Elijah says, no, you're being divisive by forsaking the commandments of the Lord. And the scriptures do talk about divisive people. And the people who are being divisive are those who are preaching error. So for us to expose someone who is preaching error is to expose the divisive spirit. And for us to call him to repent of his error is to call him to unity. But when the scriptures speak about people who are being divisive, it's talking about people who are preaching and tolerating error. That's the division. Preaching the truth is not the division. And that's why I think that I think Elijah's example is such a good, good one because he was basically being accused of being divisive. And he said, no, no, uh, I'm preaching the truth. You're the one who's preaching that we should forsake the commandments of God. And that's division. So, you know, and, and I think, you know, I, when we conclude, I've just got a long list of things that Keller has said that are so divisive because they're just so flat wrong and that, it's that the error of Keller, the divisiveness of Keller, is to preach error as if it was the truth. That yeah, that's that's great. Um, I think uh, I think you summed that up well. 
Okay, so the final question, and I'm almost afraid to ask this one because it has been a very big struggle for me to answer it. Um, but I think it's a very important question, and the reason why, here's why. Because uh, we disagree with, uh, you know, I, I, okay, so, so for instance, I love R.C. Sproul, but I disagree with his apologetical approach, his apologetic method. I love John MacArthur, but I disagree with his uh, his eschatology. Um, so th there are people out there that you 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 love and you respect and you you uh, you benefit from and you value their teaching, and you disagree with. And so my question is: this is a question that that uh, I'd like. To, to put out there is, is that the same category that we would put Tim Keller in? And would we be willing to call Tim Keller a false teacher? And if so, um, to what degree? Um, so how do we view Keller uh, in the way of, because it's easy, I think it's so easy for people to say, uh, Joel Osteen, false teacher. Uh, Benny Hinn, false teacher. Kenneth Copeland, false teacher. But there, because Keller has has such a you know a stellar reputation, because Keller has such a stellar uh, list of credentials, uh, you know, quote unquote, we've already tackled that issue. Uh, you know, and he he started the Gospel Coalition and. People are, are very, very reluctant, especially me, myself, is very reluctant to say, oh, well, he's a false teacher, and to label him as such and to warn people away from him. So where do we stand on that? How do we answer that, that, uh, that question? Well, I'll be happy to take a shot at it. Um, uh, I want to let me start by just bringing out a, a couple examples. I'll just make this very quick, but... Now, when um, Tim Keller likes to pull on a, a quote from Teresa of Avila, uh, a Spanish Roman Catholic counter-reformational mystic, who uh, was talking about how, how great it will be uh, in heaven when we get there, it'll make all the years on earth seem like a night in a bad hotel. And Keller says, uh, I like to bring that out every month or so. So here is Keller. It was from his sermon, July 1st, 2001, arguing about the afterlife, and he's invoking Teresa of Avila. And if you go back and look at Teresa of Avila's quote from there, she's actually talking about purgatory. And uh, she's talking about suffering in purgatory, doing penance for our sins in purgatory, uh, or, or do, doing penance for our sins to avoid purgatory, because it's all just going to seem like a bad night in a bad hotel when we finally get to heaven. So that's Teresa of Avila talking about purgatory and, and earning our way into heaven and trying to do penance to stay out of purgatory. And, and Tim Keller says he likes to bring that out uh, every month, at least once a month. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I also want to remind folks that he also tried to introduce, as I mentioned in our last plot, uh, podcast, that uh, he likes to bring out the chaplet of the divine mercy uh, and, and teach this to people. And it's something that's based on an apparition of Mary in the 1930s. So, so let, let's just take all the stuff we've talked about, the Marxism, the, uh, the Roman Catholic mysticism, and everything we've talked about so far, and let's just put this question out there. Keller's clearly a Marxist. 
He appeals to the errors of such Marxists and socialists as Dorothy Sayers, Vinath Ramachandra, Gustavo Guterres, Reinhold Niebuhr, and Robert Bella, all of whom called for Marxist and socialist revolutions in America and England to overthrow, overthrow their capitalist systems. These are the people, he says, who hold the key to the Christian work ethic. Just read his book, uh, Every Good Endeavor. That's what it's about. His model for the ideal church is one that is modeled after the uh, Marxist revolutionary precepts of Saul Alinsky and liberation theology. For example, East Brooklyn churches in New York and Allen Temple Baptist Church in California. He triangulates the scriptures with the heirs of men in order to find a spiritual third way to instruct his flock. He addresses the Biologos Conference, expressing the need to be open to the possibility that Adam and Eve were the products of evolution, since Genesis 1 is not to be taken literally, so he says. As we highlighted in our, in our analysis of his exegetical method, he would leave out scriptures that do not comport with his own personal narrative, but adds in stories that do. He believes the preacher can get sanctification done even through error and falsehood, as long as the end result is the listener worships Christ. Obviously, it doesn't matter that, uh, whether you worship Christ in spirit and truth or not. The important thing is that Keller gets sanctification done, even if he has to preach falsehood to do it. When it comes to meditation, Keller appeals to the counter-reformational mystics, Ignatius Loyola, Francis de Sales, John of the Cross, and St. Teresa of Avila. In fact, by his own admission, he cites Teresa of Avila every month or so in comparing heaven to earth, and in fact, he's actually quoting her on purgatory. Um, his church offered a class called the Way of the Monk, in which participants were invited to discover age-old methods of contemplative prayer, including the chaplet of the Divine Mercy, which was in fact introduced in the 1930s by a demonic apparition of Jesus to a Roman Catholic nun when she was worshiping the Eucharist. In his recent book on prayer, Keller cites Roman Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar at the very point that Balthasar was taught, teaching about Eucharistic adoration and warning against the dangers of Protestantism because our theology is insufficiently Marian and insufficiently Eucharistic. In the same book, he appeals to Flannery O'Connor as a model of sincere prayer, invoking her prayer journal in which he prays to Mary for help, because as it turns out, uh, O'Connor was vehemently anti-Protestant and devoted to the Eucharist and devoted, devoted to praying to Mary and honoring her. So Keller claims to be against counterfeit gods, but endorses Adele Albert Calhoun's book called Spiritual Disciplines, in which she endorses Eucharistic adoration. So, hey, I'm laying that on the table, and I'm asking the question, has there ever been a popular preacher more devoted to introducing Marxism, evolution, liberation theology, Roman Catholic idolatry, mysticism, and demonism into the church than Tim Keller. I say, no, there has not been. Where does that put Tim Keller? Let's read what Peter and Paul said. Paul says, for this I know, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, and is addressed to the Ephesian elders that uh, Carlos mentioned earlier. And this is 2 Peter 2, 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there were, as even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even not deny the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. You know, I, I look at the library, the compilation of Tim Keller's works, and all I can see is this is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he has done so much damage to the gospel of Christ and to the church itself by trying to import all this demonism, mysticism, idolatry, and Marxism that I, I weigh that in the balance of scripture and I say the man is a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
and he is a grievous wolf trying to enter in, not sparing the flock. That's Tim Kaufman's opinion. Okay, I have a question about that. I, I don't disagree with what you said, Marxism, Roman Catholicism, evolution. Is what at what point so he believes in justification by faith alone. We would all agree with that. He's Trinitarian, believes in justification by faith alone, so much that he wants to read it into every single passage of the scripture. How well, I don't understand why he's in love with the, the mysticism. I don't I don't get that. Uh, and I haven't read his work, so I don't know how that plays into his, you know, worldview on other things. But at, is are those other things enough? Are they either of uh, a qualitative um, problem, or are they enough of a quantitative problem that it would that it would ra raise us to say, even though this man teaches justification correctly, that is outweighed by these other facts? Well, I would have to. Th I'll put this out on the table as well. Is that G.K. Chesterton absolutely despises the doctrine of justification by faith alone? He despised it. <laughs> Ignatius of Loyola, Teresa of Avila, these, these Spanish counter-referential mystics hated, hated the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Flannery O'Connor despised it, ridiculed Protestants. The fact is, Keller sees them all as brothers in Christ. And the question that I would have to ask is this, either he is so ignorant of Roman Catholicism that he probably, it is absolutely unqualified to be judging, you know, whether or not these people are uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's so ignorant of Roman Catholicism that he doesn't know that they're not brothers in Christ. Or he is sufficiently familiar with the, the errors of Roman Catholicism, the false gospel that Roman Catholicism advances, and still doesn't think that it's at odds with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so he can consider people who reject it and hate it as brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that Keller is so grossly ignorant or willfully misled on these things that he just simply is not trustworthy. I don't know how you can read and understand Roman Catholicism and then look at Flannery O'Connor and Gustavo Guterres and uh, von Balthasar and uh, let's see, who, who are all the other ones I, I pulled up? Uh, Teresa of Avila and Ignatius Loyola, Francis de Sales, all of whom despise the doctrine of justification by faith alone and say, yeah, they're Christians too. I mean, how do you answer that? Keller sure, surely knows that these people hated, despised justification by faith alone. And yet he considers them fellow Christians. Has, has Keller truly understood the gospel if he doesn't get that? What is his point? Why why does he love them so much? What does he think that is worthwhile? Or it, according to him, in his own words, why are these people worth reading and worth imitating? I, you know, all I can say is that <laughs> in his in his message on meditation, he says, "Hey, some of the best stuff I've read on meditation is by these counter-reformational mystics," and uh, he says, "Hey, it's great stuff." And uh, you know why? In his own words, I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't have, I don't have an explanation from, from Keller about why he heaps such laud and honor and praises on these people that worshiped the Eucharist, hated the Reformation, 
absolutely deny justification by faith alone and consider Protestantism to be a cult, heretical cult. He says, yep, they're my brothers and sisters of Christ. He's, he's maintaining a contradiction in his mind, which is evidence of insanity. It's not evidence <laughs> of, uh, of, of soundness, yeah. So. Well, I think this might actually illustrate well the what that expression even means, a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Like if you look at someone, T.D. Jakes, for example, a modalist, that's that he's not wearing sheep's clothing. He's just a wolf. Like you point, that guy's a wolf. There's no hiding it. Um, the fact, I mean, the fact that it, it's so difficult to to take certain of his statements and say, well, yeah, of course that's perfectly orthodox. But then he's other, well, why is that there? Perhaps that is the sheep's clothing that protects and covers everything else that's under it. You know that. You know that. <laughs> that that puts a. I mean, that just wraps it up and puts a bow on it. I mean, I think that, you know, he, he, he claims to believe in, in justification by faith alone. And yet he believes people who deny it are fellow Christians. And so, you know, that, that's, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. You can't, you can't maintain that in your mind and, and still be sound theologically and even sound psychologically. I think there's something else there that has Keller trying to bring uh, – almost bring the Protestant Reformation to an end and get back together with Roman Catholicism because he obviously doesn't have a problem with these people. You know, uh, one thing one thing that I want to bring out, uh, going back to the, the passage in, and I, Owen, I think that's a great, great point uh, about the wolf in sheep's clothing. Going back to uh, the passage in uh, Acts 20, uh, starting in verse 26, uh, but look, before I do that, let me go to uh, James 3, uh, verse 1. There's a clear warning in James 3, verse 1. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so in, in Acts uh, 20, uh, the, the, the passage that Carlos um, looked up or referenced earlier, uh, which says, you know, that he he pled with the Ephesians uh, day and night for three years. That uh, when he when he Paul departed from them, that fierce wolves would come up from among them. So a couple of things we have to we have to at least be willing to acknowledge that there are going to be wolves that are going to come up from within us, from among us, uh, and in starting in verse twenty six, I think this is this is really. I think the question that I have is, Paul says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, that that's startling to me because Paul's saying, basically, look, if, if any one of you are, is lost, I'm innocent of, of that because I declared to you the whole counsel of God. And what I have to wonder is this, is that when somebody who, who's, who's trusted, like Tim Keller, is out there endorsing people like G.K. Chesterton, uh, all these Roman Catholics, and, and I, I, lo I would love to do a couple of series on Roman Catholicism. I think we need to do that. I absolutely despise Rome. I hate Rome uh, because... My family is is Roman Catholic, and so this hits close to home for me. And when I hear a, a, a quote-unquote reformed Protestant pastor 
endorsing rank heretics who I mean, you throw that out there and, and you have people who will, hey, he, he referenced G.K. Chesterton. I'm going to go read me some G.K. Chesterton or he referenced these other people. And you have no idea how many people are going to be affected by that and misled by that and, and fall into uh, th these other false teachers. And so I don't think that K Keller can say this for himself, that he is innocent of the blood of all uh, because he declared to them the whole counsel of God. We've seen that he hasn't declared, he, he refuses to declare to them the whole counsel of God. And not only that, he hands his, his own flock. So, so if he's an under shepherd, think of the analogy of a shepherd. He should have a staff. He should beat the wolf who, who even comes near to the flock. Instead of doing that, he hands them over to wolves that would devour them. And so I would place Keller in the category of false teacher. I think his, his sheep's clothing is is remarkable. It, this is something that I struggled with for such a long time, wrestling with exactly what Owen brought out is how do I call him a false teacher? But he's, he's, you know, it looks like he's preaching the gospel accurately until I realized, you know what? Keller actually botches the gospel in a number of areas where he denies the, the, the doctrine of propitiation. And I realized how important that doctrine is. So, does anybody else have anything to, to or, I mean, disagree with what I said or, or uh, anything else to say about that? No, I think that all of the, 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 the heartfelt praise for the Counter-Reformation mystics to me is just, it's, it's incomprehensible. I, I really don't even understand it. But the, the most, but the most damning evidence for me is the fact that he would leave out the ending of Esther and say, well, that doesn't fit into the biblical narrative. I, I don't even, I mean, that, that, that's like, there's not even a question about that. That's just on the face of it, absurd. You know, I'll, <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, uh, I, I want to, I'm going to refer to an article that was written in 2013 by Peter Lightheart of uh, New Perspective fame. Uh, his article was published in a Roman Catholic magazine called First Things, and it's called The End of Protestantism. And he starts by saying the Reformation isn't over, but Protestantism should be. And he goes through and makes the case contrasting Protestants with Reformational Catholics. He thinks that we should be Reformational Catholics. And I'm going to just give you a couple key quotes from here. And he says, uh, a Protestant exaggerates his distance from Roman Catholicism on every point of theology and practice and is skeptical of Roman Catholics who say they believe in salvation by grace. And then, then he says, on the other hand, a Reformational Catholic, which was what we're all supposed to be, cheerfully acknowledges that he shares creeds with Roman Catholics and he welcomes reforms and ref reformulations as hopeful signs that we might at last stake out common ground beyond the barricades. So, so he goes on, and it's actually, it's a very, very interesting article, and I encourage people to read it if they want to understand where Keller is coming from, because I think that he takes the same position. And, and, and you'll, you'll understand why I say that when I continue here. Uh, Lightheart goes on, he says, a Protestant's heroes are Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and their heirs. If he acknowledges any ancestry before the Reformation, they are proto-Protestants like Hus and Wycliffe. And then now he goes and describes the Reformational Catholic, 
which we're all supposed to be like. He says, a Reformational Catholic gratefully receives the history of the entire church as his history. And along with the reformers, he honors Augustine, Gregory the Great, as Pope Gregory the Great, the Cappadocians, Alcuin and Rabanus Maras, Thomas and Bonaventure, Dominic and Francis and Dante, Ignatius and Teresa of Avila, Chesterton, de Lubac and Conger as fathers and brothers and sisters. A reformational Catholic knows some of his ancestors were deeply flawed, but won't delete them from the family tree. This is, this is Lightheart saying, hey, you guys need to get over the reformation. And it's high time we all did. And you know what? When I listen to Keller talk about Balthazar, Flannery O'Connor, G.K. Chesterton, and all those counter-reformational mystics, he's saying exactly the same thing the Lightheart is. You guys need to get over the Reformation and move on because there's a battle to be fought and we can't win it without Roman Catholicism. And in that, he has forgotten that the real battle is to defend and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's ready to give it up in order to win a culture battle. And that is to exchange our inheritance for a mess of pottage. Well, I think that is good enough to wrap up. Uh, I think, uh, I think Carlos, Carlos, are you there? I think he dropped out. Yeah, he's gone. He said he is going to have to drop out. He sent me, he sent us a message and I actually didn't see it. Um, but, uh, okay, well, let me, let me go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, Owen, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that before I do? No, not at all. Awesome. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you to brother, uh, Tim Kaufman for coming on with us again. Uh, if we can ever make some uh, Semper Reformanda shirts, I will gladly send you one as a thank you. Uh, we're, we're working on that. So um, anyways, uh, Owen, thank you uh, for putting in the time. I know it's late where you are, and so I'm, I'm praying that you can get some sleep, some quality sleep. And uh, guys, uh, everybody out there, we just thank you for, for tuning in today. We hope everybody has a blessed week, uh, and we'll check you next week week uh same time same channel all right bye